Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their spleen about history and our perception of it. Arguably the largest outpouring of rage and fury on land, sea and air. I am public historian Paul Bavel and I am here alone this week because my fellow traveller and historian therapy Kyle is off celebrating his sister's graduation who has just graduated with a first in psychology. So from both of us here at History Rage, Meg, well done. Now this week, dear Ragers, we are back in the Second World War and we are gearing up to liberate Europe and the world from tyranny of myth. To storm the Atlantic Wall with us today, we are joined by historian, author and executive director of the Juno Beach Centre, Alex Fitzgerald Black. Alex, welcome to History Rage. You're welcome. Feeling angry? Well, thanks for having me, Paul. I bet you can, yeah. I think I can work myself up. So, we connected following the recommendation of you from our Series 3 Rager, Bradson Qua, came on to talk about Canada and Vimy Ridge. But for our angry mob out there, can you give us an insight into your work, yourself, and the museums and organisation that you represent? Sure, I can. Um, my background in history, um, I have two masters in history, actually. One is a master of military history, which was uh, completed in 2014 at the University of New Brunswick uh, in Fredericton, Canada. Uh, worked under uh, historians Lee Windsor and uh, Mark Milner out there. And Lee Windsor is probably Canada's foremost expert on the Italian campaign. And so he roped me in to a thesis on the Allied Air Forces in Operation yeah. Husky in 1943. And that became a book, which is called Eagles Over Husky, which came out in 2018 uh, for the, I guess that was the, would have been the 75th anniversary of the operation. Um, then I was in consulting for a few years, doing research and that sort of thing, wanted to get back into history. So I did a second master's in public history at the University of Western Ontario, which is in mm -hmm. London, Canada, London, Ontario, Canada. And from there, I landed a position at the Juno Beach Centre Association, and we are the charity that owns and operates the Juno Beach Centre Museum 
on Canada's D-Day landing beach in France. And so fast forward a few years now, uh, I am the executive director of the charity uh, that owns and operates the museum. I work closely with the staff at the museum, uh, but I don't run the museum itself. We promote their efforts here in Canada and get, you know try yeah. to find funding for them. How do you go about finding thing. funding for a museum? It's not easy, especially a museum <laughs> yes. that is over in another country. Uh, that is that is that is a Canadian you know national museum. Like a lot of the typical grants that museums can go after. Uh, in Canada are not necessarily available to us. Like we can get a grant, for instance, for work done for the association in Canada. So there's a number of summer student, you know, work grants that the government offers. And we actually have a few of them working for us this summer. Um, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily directly support the museum, you know, over overseas. So we're very fortunate to have the funding of Veterans Affairs Canada, uh, which gives the museum about uh, 500,000 Canadian dollars per year and has done for a number of years. But ultimately, we're very much reliant on the donations of Canadians and other people, you know, Canadians even living in the UK. Um, we tend to have, be quite popular with Canadians living abroad uh, because either they can access yeah. us a little bit easier because they live in Europe or they're kind of feeling that, you know, they're missing that Canadian nostalgia and so they really want to support a very Canadian institution like ours and so we're very reliant on our donors to, to help us you know put on programs you know get new exhibits together uh that sort of thing the museum itself um is also uh, it operates on a business basis it, it does you know there uh, there are tickets to go in and, and uh, there are guided tours that right. people can pay for as well okay so a lot of very proud work there Absolutely, absolutely. Our museum was founded by veterans, uh, basically in the 1990s. Um, a lot of them were, you know, uh, in retirement, and, and now even the youngest ones were looking to go back and visit their comrades in the war cemeteries in Normandy and elsewhere, and visit their old battlefields and battle battlegrounds. And a number of them went back. And uh, our founder, Garth Webb who was with the 14th Field Artillery Regiment on D-Day, went back, and he was a little disappointed that, although there were some small memorials to, you know, mm. regiments and units that had landed on Juneau Beach and fought into Normandy, there was nothing there that really told the complete Canadian story. Um, and so him and a group of other veterans and, and, and their loved ones founded an association, our association, that actually evolved out of the 14th Field Regiment uh, Veterans Organization, and uh, they raised uh, between 10 and 12 million Canadian dollars to build the museum. And that was most, you know, that was, yeah. there was some public money involved in that. Uh, but in particular, uh, they were really looking for, you know, corporate and, and, and Canadians to just step up and help. And, and they did. And, and as a result, that's the legacy. Most of these veterans, unfortunately, have passed on now. But they've left this legacy, the Juno Beach Okay, Center, well, um, let's uh, France. step away from what you are most proud of and most happy about. And let's get step into really what pisses you off so this is the pinnacle of what history rage is all about so alex would you please tell our baying mob of history rages out there the one thing that you wish people would just stop believing and get over well one thing that really grinds my gears and has for some time and and my background in a different amphibious operation which i'll talk about in a moment has something to do with this but my rage is that so many people, so many people, including historians and institutions, refer to the D-Day landings as the largest amphibious operation in history, 
or the largest invasion in history, or the largest military operation in history. And none of those things are true. Not at all. And it really annoys me when people uh, you know, refer to it that way, because it gives short shrift to some of the other operations, especially ones that the Allies conducted in the course of bringing victory in the war. As an example of this, last April, I visited the impressive new British Normandy mm-hmm. Memorial at Vers-sur-Mer. Beautiful memorial. Would recommend it to everybody. And when you visit, you leave the parking lot and walk towards the memorial along a winding path. And that that path is broken up by a number of large stone tablets telling the story of the British campaign in Normandy. And at the very top of the of the first tablet, which is entitled The Beaches and the Bridgehead, it labels D-Day as the greatest amphibious assault in history. And I just say, how the hell can an organization like that with all the money behind it, make a mistake like that. It's absolutely not true. Or at the very least, it's quite misleading. Because maybe it comes down to what figures you're talking about. But that really grinds my gears. D-Day is not the largest amphibious operation in history. There were were larger ones. Um, I can get to them in a second. It is certainly not the largest invasion in history. There's plenty of others we could talk about there. And it's not the largest military operation in history by a long shot. It's a really significant operation, and it was really important that it succeeded. And I don't want to take anything away from any of the young men and women who were supporting them that made it successful. But it's not the greatest amphibious operation in history. And that is my rage today. Okay, so I'm going to throw this right back at you then because you've come up with three there that is like, okay, it's not the largest amphibious operation. It's not the largest thing. Invasion. It's it's not the greatest military operation ever. What is? Well, again, it comes down to what numbers you want to use to create your model. So, for instance, let's go over the numbers for Operation Neptune, the amphibious part of Operation Overlord. One hundred fifty-six thousand men landed by sea and air. Approximately one hundred thirty-three thousand landed by sea. So that's the amphibious part. It's one hundred thirty-three thousand men landing by sea. Mm-hmm. There are. 11,590 aircraft or so assigned. And that's really impressive, by the way, because I don't think there's probably ever been, I can't think of one, that many aircraft involved in a single operation at once. Mm. There were 6,900 ships and landing craft. So on those aerial and naval numbers, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, you know, air, land, and sea assault. And I would say it is absolutely probably the largest combined military operation in history, given those figures, given those, especially the naval and the Air Force figures. But as an example, you know, if we want to talk about the largest amphibious operation in history, Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily in 1943, almost uh, just over, just under a year before, there were 160,000 men landing by sea and air and somewhere around 150,000 of those landed by sea on the first day. So a year before, there was an operation that was larger in terms of an amphibious assault. Yeah. Now, Operation Husky only had about 4,400 aircraft involved. So if you compare that to the number of fighter aircraft involved with Operation Neptune, it's actually yeah. slightly smaller. There were only about half as many ships and and landing vessels involved about 2,600 or so. So again, we have to be very specific in our terms. It's not the largest 
amphibious operation in history. Nor- uh, Normandy is not the largest amphibious operation in history, but it is perhaps the largest combined operation in history. There's other examples. We could talk about, you know, if we want to talk about the invasion piece, is it the largest invasion yeah. in history? You know, I would just point to Operation Barbarossa in uh, June 1941. The Germans assembled 150 divisions. Now, this is a land, primarily a land-air operation. There's very little involved in terms of a sea component. But you have 150 German divisions and 3 million men assembled, right? Yeah, now that that, that is putting Overlord it's, it's into not the ground, even, even, even if close. you take into account the air. It's, it's not even close. There's fewer aircraft involved. You know, there's only 2,500 estimates vary, but there's, you know, only a couple thousand, maybe a little bit more aircraft involved. Hmm. But again, in terms of men assembled for an invasion, that is larger, which makes sense because it's a land border we're talking about. We're not talking about bringing pe- a bunch of people by sea, you know, across the English yeah. Channel and even it's from as far away as... big land border as well, it, isn't yeah. it? When you consider it, yeah. It's absolutely massive. We also we seem to not consider things like you know the Western Allied invasion of Germany in 1945, and I just looked up some figures about that today. And now there's a whole bunch of operations involved in this, but the Allies assembled an absolutely massive force for that invasion of Germany, which occurred over multiple days and even weeks. You know, in, in early 1945, some like 4.5 million men, 17,000 tanks, 63,000 artillery pieces and 28,000 combat aircraft. So again, over a much longer period, but that's a massive invasion as well, which dwarfs Operation Barbarossa. And I'm not an expert on the Eastern Front by any stretch, but I'm sure if you looked into some of those records and what the Soviets assembled on the Eastern Front in 1944-1945, those are massive operations too. So we're fast-forwarding a little bit with with D-Day and calling it the largest, you know, military operation or largest invasion or largest amphibious assault in history, and we're neglecting certain other aspects of the history. So that's settled that then. I'm going to move back to D-Day now, and less on the size and scale of Mm -hmm. D-Day operation, but particularly as, because you're representing the Juno Beach Centre and the Juno Beach Centre Trust, Juno, I would probably say, is is the most overlooked beach of Operation Neptune, of Operation Overlord. I mean, Omaha gets all the movie love from Saving Private Ryan. Um, most Brits will bang on about Sword Beach. The only VC of D-Day is awarded for action on gold. And Utah Beach gets its fair share of paratroopers and that sort of action and everything. But what's going on on Juno? And... What what actions and, and acts are we overlooking? Well, a lot's going on on Juno, and some of it's similar to, you know, Sword Beach, Gold Beach, and some of it is different. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about Juno Beach that I think has gone understudied, both perhaps in Canada and the UK, is the fact that it was a binational beach. I mean, two-thirds of the mm. force that landed there were Canadian, but about a third of them, you know, 7,000 or so, seven to 8,000, were Brits. And the Brits were there uh, providing, you know, specialized assault vehicles, uh, providing specialized engineering equipment. Um, You know, they're not included on those numbers, but helping to deliver the Canadian forces, you know, on landing craft, uh, Mm -hmm. beach groups to defend the beachhead, uh, British commandos on the flank, kind of at the intersection between Sword and Juno as well, you know, doing pretty heavy lifting. So that's really an interesting point that doesn't tend to get covered. I guess this is... The neglect for Juno Beach goes back to the days of like the longest day. 
I, I, I don't <laughs> think there's a single scene that really depicts Juno Beach or Canadians in general. Um, I think uh, the, there's the uh, Beachmaster, trying to remember his name right now, now Maud, I think. And he was actually the Beachmaster for Juno Beach. But if you watch the clip, which is available on YouTube, all the troops around him are wearing 3rd British Division uniforms, and he refers <laughs> to Sword Beach. So they've kind of migrated him to Sword Beach instead, and the characters yeah. going on around him are Brits on the wrong beach. And I know that there's stories like Mark Milner, who's one of our great historians, he tells a story, and he can tell it way better than me. His dad was an, a, a gunner uh, who was there on D-Day, and when he and a number of his veteran friends went to see The Longest Day, they left very upset because there was no Canadian representation in the movie almost whatsoever. And it's interesting because when the long when when Cornelius Ryan was writing his book, The Longest Day, he did interview, he did uh, collect surveys from Canadian veterans. It just seems that they never really found it into the book, and certainly didn't really find it into uh, the movie itself. So this is this has been a, a long standing issue, and it's really too bad because there's so much to talk about. I mean, the Canadians. Probably, I mean, Paul Woodage laid this out really, really well on your Omaha Beach episode some time ago. The Canadian beach, Juno Beach, was probably, by percentage casualties, the deadliest beach of the five Allied beaches. On yeah, there. I remember him mentioning that. And and that's a that's a point. You know, in terms of overall numbers, absolute figures, it's a smaller casualty toll because there were fewer Canadians and fewer Brits on Juno than there were um, at Omaha. Omaha was like a two division landing, whereas Juno was a was a uh, was a large division landing, if you will, yeah. with with some, with some added components. I think what really also gets missed, maybe not missed, but but it's important to tell this story because, much like other sec- sectors of the beach, it was really the tenacity, the bravery, and perseverance of the average Canadian or British soldier, you know, engineer, tanker, that really won the day. Uh, like a lot of the other beaches, the air bu- the air bombardment, the naval bombardment, really didn't succeed. Um, it perhaps didn't even really suppress the enemy because it came in, you know, in many cases too early and the, the infantry and, and tanks landed a little bit late. And as a result, they didn't get that benefit of suppression. And so as an example, you know, Montgomery, I think, told a lot of the assault troops, you know, expect 75% casualties. One sector of the beach, which is Mike Red sector, which is the sector the museum um, is built on, was assaulted by a B Company of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, led by a Captain uh, Philip Edwin Gower. And they had about 120-plus uh, men. There was a bunch of engineers who were also attached uh, to the force. By the end of the fighting, when they had captured all the positions and everything, out of 120 or more, or slightly more than that men, just 27 men remained, or standing. Ouch. And that was, and, and Gower, Captain Gower, who won the military cross for his leadership that day, was the only officer still standing. The assault engineers essentially suffered basically the same percentage of losses, about 77, 78%. Uh, and so some incredibly deadly stretches of beach. It was a bit of a... There were some sectors of beach that were less deadly than others, and this was certainly one of the worst. And, and it's a story that we tell you know, pretty much every day uh, at the mm. museum uh, with our guides giving tours of that, of that sector. The other thing that, that, that is really important about Juno Beach that hasn't, that's only in the last 10 years really come through in the literature is, uh, the work by Mark Milner in his book, Stopping the Panzers. So I don't know if you've, you've read or heard of, uh, that book, 
But um, uh, I've heard of Mark. Right. And, and I mentioned Mark earlier and his father. Um, so Mark was did some research uh, back in kind of the uh, early 2010s and, and 2000s. And he actually found that the planning documents for Neptune and Overlord suggest that Juno Beach, which has often been seen as just the connective tissue between Sword Beach and Gold Beach. You know, you need someone to land between the British force going after Caen and the British force going after Bayeux. It's much more than that, because in between those two cities, there's a, a river called uh, the Mew River and the Mew River Valley. And on either side of that is really good terrain for launching a big panzer counterattack. And the Allies were very concerned that this was an area in which the Germans would try to concentrate their armor to drive the Allies into the sea. Yeah, because you can always count on Germans to counterattack. Exactly. And the Allies knew this, and they planned for it. A big a big deal for many, many decades was made of how 3rd British Division, 3rd Canadian Division didn't capture Caen on D-Day, right? They're you know, missed opportunity oh, yeah. to get to Caen. Well, what was more important than capturing you know, Caen, even though it was quite important, was to make sure that the German counterattack, wherever it appears on the line, doesn't succeed. And it turns out that they were quite correct. The Germans did, in the days after June 6th, attempt to basically concentrate three Panzer divisions. The 21st Panzer Division, which was already uh, you know in the Caen area, Mm-hmm. The 12th SS Panzer Division, which had come up fairly quickly, as well as the Panzer Lair Division, they had tried. They actually tried to concentrate them, kind of between, you know, the 7th and the 12th or so of June, to make this counterattack, and they never really managed to do it. And the Germans kept trying to, um, the, 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 especially um, elements of 21st Panzer, elements of uh, the 12th SS, tried to basically secure a start line that the Canadians had captured on D plus one. And they largely failed in that task. And as a result, the Panzer counterattack never happened. So Mark Milner's new argument is that Juno Beach has even more importance, not necessarily for the beach itself, but for the terrain the Canadians managed to capture in the, in, in the afternoon of D-Day and in, in, and in the day mm. after that, to provide that buffer so that when the counterattack did occur, which it did, just not in as coordinated a fashion as one would have feared, they were able to defeat that counterattack, uh, make sure it you know didn't get through to the beaches, didn't really get past its own start line, and at the end of the day, that resulted in a successful beachhead you know being secured, and the Germans from that point on you know they're going to keep trying to amass those forces, but and it's a battle of logistics now, right? It's a battle of how fast yeah. can the Germans reinforce you know over the rail lines you know from the continent, and how fast can the Allies do so, and, and eventually, as we know, the Allies win that battle. Yeah, Germany was uh, well. We've had a uh, a few people talking about Germany's capacity to fight longer attritional style wars, and they just can't do it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so I mentioned earlier on that you'd come from recommendation from Brad St. Quine. We'd had him on discussing the impact of Vimy Ridge on Canada as a nation. And one of the points that he made was that he didn't feel that Canada was born as a nation in the First World War. He was very much going towards that Actually, the Second World War has much more of an impact on Canada. It's much more responsible for shaping the Canada that we know today. So what, is, what impact does Canadian involvement in D-Day and the wider war have on Canada as a nation to kind of continue that theme? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I, I, I tend to agree with Brad there. I think at best an argument could potentially be made. And, and one of our leading historians, Tim Cook, has made this argument that perhaps the entirety of the First World War was something like a war of independence for Canada. Um, but when it comes to the Second World War, um, I think Brad is bang on. Um, Canadian involvement in D-Day and in, in the wider war has huge implications for Canada as a nation. Vimy tends to capture Canadians' attention as that defining moment, and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a myth, and so, you know, myths are typically based on kernels of truth and, and untruths mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And they have a certain power when it comes to public perceptions and, and collective memory. So if we want to say the First World War was the birth of the nation, if we want to say that that myth stands, um, the Second World War, which doesn't have as much of, a, of an enduring myth, but I think it has more basis in fact, it really showcased the emergence of Canada onto the world stage, and it certainly helped Canada usher, usher in an age of prosperity for our country. I mean, the, the the sad reality was at the end of the war, you know, Europe was in ruins. You know, the British were absolutely bankrupt, as you well know. Yeah. Canada was in a bit of a different position, you know, being positioned, you know, next to the United States, having a whole bunch of investment put in it, you know, for the war. The British Commonwealth Air Training Plan being an example. Um, a whole bunch of military spending and everything really gave the economy a boost. But with, un- unfortunately for Canada in the Second World War, that myth, you know, there was never really a myth that kind of coalesced around any particular event or battle. Mm. Like Vimy Ridge, you know, there's the, the great story about how, you know, you have four Canadian divisions, the entirety of the Canadian Corps participating in that one battle. Well, the Canadian army in the Second World War was split into two theaters for the victory campaign, right? You had, um, we had a corps, the first Canadian corps down in Italy, and we had second Canadian yeah. corps along with first Canadian army in Normandy, uh, France and Belgium and the Netherlands. Now, eventually at the end of the war, the, uh, first corps from Italy does join in February and March 1945, uh, the rest of the Canadian army. So, but either way, there's no kind of central defining battle. Uh, for Canada in the Second World War. We don't necessarily have, like, the Blitz or a Dunkirk, you know, like event. I mean, we've got, you know, the Dieppe Raid, which was a huge colossal disaster, but that doesn't really bring forth much pride, I think. It's more, you know, a sense of sorrow and and, and loss. Vimy's also achieved its great status because of the beautiful Canadian National Vimy Memorial, which was built by the government at great cost. At the end of the Second World War, and this is where some of the difference occurred, a lot of the memorialization or commemoration 
was in essence, I think, a lot of the veterans simply getting along on with their lives and living their and, and living their lives as best they could. So we had 1.1 million uh, Canadians serve in the Second World War out of a population of 11 million, and so everywhere you went in you know the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, mm-hmm. and, and even beyond that. There were veterans everywhere in society, right? Cabinet ministers, prime, even some prime ministers, uh, they all had some sort of role or, or remember, you know, remembered the Second World War in some way. And that's kind of the difference. After the, what we did in the Second World War was we didn't build too many new memorials. Instead, we just tacked on some names and numbers yeah. to the First World War. And I think that was probably similar in Britain as well. And again, there wasn't really a defining central battle or moment. I mean, perhaps the closest would be maybe Juno Beach. You could say, you know, the air, land, and sea work together for a common end there. You could also say, you know, VE Day and the liberation of the Netherlands, where Canada took, you know, played a significant role in that, um, uh, was really key. And it really wasn't until the 1990s when, the, again, the veterans started going back and were welcomed back with open arms to places uh, in Normandy and especially mm-hmm. in the Netherlands where Canadians really started to sit up and realize that, you know, we had played a really significant role. But like we said, you know, there are so many impacts that this war had on Canada, you know, uh, social, you know, the, the social system and the, and the role of the welfare state, you know, is really set in part by the Second World War and the aftermath and the veterans benefits that were afforded those veterans who could go out, you know, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't necessarily equal opportunity. There were, um, some instances where, for example, Indigenous veterans didn't necessarily get access to the same services and that sort of thing. But by and large, the veterans were treated fairly well with the Veterans Charter, and they you know, were given money so that they could go to school to start mm-hmm. careers. They were given money or, or land to build houses, which could help them start their families. Um, so there were a lot of opportunities for veterans after the war, and they kind of set about building that modern Canada that exists today. And you know, it's, Would it be fair to say then that there's there's a there's a lot more there's a lot more opportunity for a Canadian to change his life following serving in the Second World War than there ever was following him serving in the First World War? Absolutely, absolutely. And and the veterans in the First World War, I think part of their experience in how they were treated when they came home, and and the role of the Depression and everything. Because a lot of those First World War veterans were now in power in government, and they could make policy. And they actually helped to drive that call for better veterans' benefits after the war, and to provide uh, for this, you know, education for this this modern generation of veterans, which was absolutely huge to try to make sure that that next generation had more opportunities than they did uh, when they came home. Okay, now you mentioned uh, you mentioned Dieppe there, and I know one of the exhibitions that you've got in place at the Juno Beach Centre at the moment is Dieppe to D Day. Now, before we dive into this question, I will warn you in advance, we have got David O'Keefe coming on to talk Dieppe uh, in, in, uh, in a few weeks, so we might not to, don't want to like, steamroll or everything over he's going to say. Um, but what, in your opinion, was learned from Dieppe? So, uh, you know, as I think most people know, um, the Dieppe raid was the darkest day for Canada in the Second World War. In the span of just eight or nine hours, uh, we lost about 100 or sorry, 100, 807 Canadian soldiers killed. What lessons were learned? Um, what we called, so we did an exhibition at the Juneau Beach Centre, and that's it's, 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 it's on right now and will be on for some time, about this. We called it From Dieppe to Juno, and we didn't call it From Dieppe to Juno to imply 
that the failure in 1942 necessarily led to success in 1944. Instead, what we're trying to do is to bring the visitor full circle from the Dieppe raid to the liberation of Dieppe in September 1944, which occurred, uh, the 2nd Division, which had gone in at Dieppe, was there mm-hmm. to liberate the town in 1944. Again, that is something that could not, that liberation could not have occurred without the success on Juno Beach and on D-Day more broadly. With regards to lessons learned, it's important to kind of put a caveat forward on lessons learned for Dieppe, and that is that narrative, that lessons learned narrative, was actually part of the public relations plan created in advance of the raid by combined operations, by Lord Louis Mountbatten's command. If the raids was successful, the successes of the raid were going to be highlighted, along with individual acts of bravery. If the raid failed, which it obviously did, individual acts of bravery were, were going to become even more central to that message, but the lessons mm-hmm. learned piece was also going to become central to the messaging that was offered um, to Allied war correspondents and, and, and citizens. Yeah. And Lord, Lord Louis Mountbatten, again, who was kind of the architect behind the whole thing um, and pushed it uh, to occur, long maintained the talking point after the war that you know the Dieppe raid saved countless lives or thousands of lives or hundreds of lives um, on D-Day. General Harry Crear, the Canadian general who later went on to command First Canadian Army, First Canadian Army in Normandy and beyond, was actually the military officer, the Canadian military officer responsible for the raid, and so. On the eve of D-Day and in the days following, when he was briefing his officers, he actually referenced Dieppe. The lessons you know, are going to be apparent from what we learned there. And so he had a stake in it, right? Because in part, his decisions mm-hmm. had led to the deaths of so many Canadians and so much suffering that it had to be for something, right? So that's the caveat I would put uh, forward. Every, every operation affords the military opportunities to learn lessons, Right. Success, failure, you can yeah. always learn lessons from what happens. But but nothing in the planning documents for the raid suggests that lessons that learning lessons was the primary goal. Absolutely, combined operations was partially set up, uh, for a large part set up, to learn those lessons and to better facilitate combined operations between, you know, land, air, and sea forces in a landing, you know, on a hostile shore. But it wasn't the main point of the raid, I don't think. I don't think it's, it, it can be really demonstrated that that was what they were, that was the number one goal going in. Some of the things that they probably did learn from the Dieppe raid um, would have been things like the development of specialized assault vehicles. Um, one of the, the sad things that happened was the Churchill tanks that the Canadian tankers had uh, were very good. I mean, they, they, they certainly could take a punishment, uh, to, you know, take a lot of hits, and, and actually very few of them were actually knocked out completely. Uh, by the Germans. They, rather, they were immobilized, you know, with their track shot off, that sort of thing. But the planning for the Dieppe raid, everything had to go like cl- clockwork. And one of the things that happened was when the landing happened, the tanks were a little bit late, which meant they couldn't provide cover for the infantry and engineers. And it was the engineer's job to go in to blow roadblocks into the town so that the tanks could actually get into the town. Unfortunately, the engineers couldn't do that because they were too exposed on the beach. So that you know, morphed out of that is, you know, the assault vehicle Royal Engineers. So you can, you don't have to get out of your vehicle necessarily, other than to perhaps load the, the, the mortar into the, into the spigot and everything to, to use that weapon and to, you know, blow a roadblock or something like that. So certainly that, that's one example of something that probably uh, resulted from Dieppe. Maybe the lesson, you know, don't assault directly a heavily defended port. 
you know, that's, you know, having recently been to Normandy, um, stood uh, just over on the hill overlooking Aramanche. And it actually, it's not as, the, the cliffs are not as bad as at Dieppe by any stretch. But it looks a little bit like Dieppe in, in the sense of you have some very high hills and cliffs around it and you have the harbor mm-hmm. in between. So they didn't end, end up attacking uh, Aramosh directly, right? They took it from the landward side. And so maybe there's a lesson there whether or not you needed to have an operation like Dieppe to learn that, I don't, I, I, it's hard, it's hard to know. Another one might be the need for better navigation aids for the aids for the Navy so that the, the landing craft could arrive at the right place. They, they could, you know, practice with certain things, radio, radio systems, that sort of thing, so that they could have better navigation aids and the, and the troops would actually land at the right place because that was one of the problems at Dieppe is some of the troops ended up not landing at exactly the right spot or realized they were going to be landing in the wrong spot and had to change direction, which delayed things. It sounds to me like there's there's no margin for error in this plan. No, there, there's, there's absolutely none. Everything had to go perfectly. And, yeah, well, I never backed the idea that they were going to sacrifice a whole load of Canadians just to see what happens. There does seem to be that across all the, across all the command structure there, nobody seems to have ever heard of the phrase, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And... Yeah, you, you, any plan, I don't. I'm not even a military person. You know, my sum total of military experience can be an absolute zero. And yet, you give me, you give me a plan where everything has to go right, and I'm going to send that plan back. Because I can't even do my laundry and get it 100% right, let alone invade France. And I'm British. That's what we do. Well, absolutely. And I think, I think that's a fair way to put it. Uh, the Dieppe plan is really interesting because it evolved so much, and sometimes they made fairly sensible decisions individually. Like, for instance, they took out the preliminary uh, bombardment of the town. Right? The, the Air Force uh, Bomber Command or British bombers were supposed to come over and attack the town you know, right before the landings went in. And they took that out for a number of reasons, which were probably all sensible at the time, and everybody agreed at the time. Um, you know, things like, you know, it would... We would no longer have surprise, for instance, and, and they wanted to, you know, they really emphasized mm-hmm. surprise in the plan. They also didn't want to make the job of the infantry and armor getting through the town any more difficult, and so, you know, you don't want to create more rubble and roadblocks when you don't need to. And thirdly, you don't necessarily want to do a, yeah. a, a large amount of damage to the local civilian population, because that's a bit of a, it could be a propaganda disaster, right? So, all sensible reasons, but in the context of the wider plan, as it kept changing, when they took out certain elements of support, um, added in different things, just the the whole was no longer cohesive anymore. Another really interesting example: they were so concerned about surprise that was the kind of main point, you know, of the plan is we're going to get there before the Germans kind of realize what's going on and storm the positions and, and we'll get off the beach. But yet, for the plan to work, the landings on the flanks had to go in earlier. Because the idea was for the landings on the flanks to have captured positions overlooking the main beach. Yeah, like we did on D-Day, you know, paratroopers in yeah, HN. but so if those landings go in early, the landing on the main beach is no longer going to be a surprise, is it? No, not So remotely. little bits and pieces like that, just, it's kind of surprising that they ended up getting through and it, 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 you know, went ahead as it did. Okay, so moving on from Dieppe and then from D-Day onwards... What roles do we see Canadian forces playing from D-Day to VE Day? You mentioned quite a lot there of the liberation of the Netherlands, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So 
I think a couple things to, to reference, you know, even before we talk about D-Day and, and, and the victory campaign, as it were, are the many enabling roles that Canadian forces and uh, even our, you know, uh, home front played uh, towards, you know, final victory. There's a whole bunch of uh, just industry that is really critical uh, to getting the Allies what mm. they need to fight this war. Uh, for instance, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but a good amount of, you know, once the Japanese offensive in, in the South Pacific started and took away a lot of um, the British Empire's sources of uh, rubber, for instance, yeah. the Canadians actually had to set up a synthetic rubber, rubber plants, one really massive one near Windsor, Ontario, which supplied a huge amount of rubber to the Allied forces. Another another example would be uh, the Royal Canadian Navy's work during the Battle of the Atlantic. The Royal Canadian Navy was kind of much maligned for its performance in the Battle of the Atlantic for many, many years. But really what happened was you had a navy that was quite tiny uh, near the start of the war expand to be you know one of the largest navies in the world by the end of the war. And they had to you know train and get this force ready. And they were doing it at a time, you know, right when, you know, around ni- late 1941 in particular, when the Americans come into the war and suddenly the Germans are switching uh, to fight uh, the, the Allied, you know, to attack the Allied uh, shipping off the, Atl- the American uh, Atlantic coast. And Canada has to be part of that response. And there's a lot that the Royal Canadian, Canadian Navy does to stretch itself so very thin to provide some of that coverage that, you know, we get knocked about a little bit and the convoys that you know, our craft or escorting tend to get knocked out about a little bit. Uh, but none of it could have been done. You know, the Battle of the Atlantic could not have been won without the Royal Canadian Navy. Um, another good example is the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. You know, training, you know, hundreds of thousands of air crew uh, in Canada in, you know, relatively safe skies away from, you know, enemy action, great open spaces. And this is one of the legacies of the Second World War in Canada because much of our aviation infrastructure is founded upon that Second World War infrastructure. Um, I learned to fly as an air cadet um, at a, you know, at a former uh, British Commonwealth Air Training Plan base, uh, which is now kind of a local uh, airport. Bomber Command, for instance, like they could not have maintained their operations against Germany without uh, the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan and specifically the crews that were were being trained in Canada. Yeah. Uh, so huge enabling roles. And then you know, for the end of the war, you've got Canadians in Italy, as I referred to. Another really good example, probably our most important battle of the war, was the Battle of the Scheldt in October and November of 1944. And that was a time where the Canadians spent more than a month with British, uh, Polish, and American forces under command. The 1st Canadian Army was quite a multinational force, partially because the Canadians in Italy, uh, one of our corps was in Italy, and so the the army needed some additional support so that it could continue to, to operate as an army. They worked very hard to clear the Scheldt estuary of German defenses, but I think it's an 80-kilometer long estuary, uh, so that Allied ships uh, could get into the port of Antwerp, uh, which could resupply, you know, provide, you know, a a port that was relatively close to the front line, so the Allies weren't just using ports, you know, back in Normandy, like at Cherbourg and and, and the Mulberry uh, Harbor that still existed, you know, and Aramosh and that sort of thing, right? So that was probably, it wasn't... It's not that, you know, sexy battle that everybody kind of likes, people like to talk about. It was dreary, it was muddy, it was, you know, uh, half of the places that they were fighting were practically underwater. Um, You know, it's not a, you know, there's no great tank battles or anything like that. It's not a fun place to go. Exactly. And, but that was probably our most important contribution to victory was securing that logistical line 
chances that the invasion of Germany uh, could proceed. And then, as I alluded to, you know, earlier, uh, the liberation of the Netherlands is really the thing that I think is increasingly, other than Canada on D-Day and at Juneau Beach, is really becoming better remembered both in this country and it's so well remembered by the Dutch. The Dutch do such a magnificent job uh, remembering what the Allies did, what the Canadians did, what the Brits did, what the Americans did, uh, with like you know candlelight ceremonies on, on uh, at Canadian war graves on Christmas Eve. Can't thank them enough for what they do. What does the Juno Beach Centre have planned for 2023? Well, we've already talked a little bit about uh, From Dieppe to Juno, our Dieppe exhibition, which launched uh, earlier in 2022. It's going to continue to run until the end of 2023. And so certainly if you're in the neighborhood uh, in 2023, you should come down to the Juno Beach Centre and check out uh, that exhibition. There's, I mean, for your British audience, there's plenty, plenty of British uh, content in that exhibition as well. We actually have a number of um, biographies uh, in our lobby of uh, people who participated in both the Dieppe Raid and in the Battle of Normandy. And there are some British servicemen included there, mm-hmm. especially some British commandos included there uh, who served uh, during both operations. As with every year since uh, 2014, um, our Canadian guides offer tours of uh, WN31, which is the German strongpoint and the bunkers right in front of the museum. Those tours really are offered in uh, kind of the spring and summer months uh, when yeah. we actually have guides on staff. So if you're there kind of during the tourist season, you should definitely check those out. The bunkers include both an observation post and um, a connected local company commander's post, which are, you know, they've been excavated and are, you know, uh, open to the public as part of our, uh, mm. if you go on one of our tours. 2023 will be a big year for the museum because it will be the 20th anniversary since the museum opened. The museum opened in 20, uh, 2003, so about a year before yeah. uh, what I guess was the 60th anniversary of D-Day at the time. Uh, they had a year to kind of prepare <laughs> for, for that anniversary. And so we're going to have some celebrations of all the museum has accomplished uh, to mark uh, that occasion. We're also going to be hard at work in 2023, uh, preparing for the 80th anniversary of D-Day in 2024. Presently, our staff are working on a major upgrade and a re-envisioning of what's called our Faces of Canada Today exhibition. This, we hope, will open uh, for the 80th anniversary of D-Day in 2024. Basically, it showcases Canada in the world since 1945. Mm. So you go to our museum, and it talks about all of Canada's effort during the Second World War. Uh, but it also starts, one of the first rooms you enter is actually about Canada before the war. And so this room is going to be about Canada coming out of the Second World War. Much of our audience is European, and so this exhibition allows uh, people to get to know Canada. The main themes are going to involve things like you know the makeup and the changing nature of Canada's population since 1945, Canada's culture of remembrance, Canadian service since 1945 around the world and at home, and stories of resilience, and really the future of remembrance and remembrance culture, uh, as I said earlier, in Canada. Okay, well, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm really happy to have shone a light on Juno Beach and Canada as, well, as like Jenny Grant mentioned when she was talking about the polls in Series 2, you know, Canada is another of our huge but overlooked allies. So so thank you very much for bringing that. Well, it's that. my pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about this subject, then you can start by visiting the Judo Beach Centre in Normandy, and you can visit their website at www.judobeach.org, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, don't forget, you can buy Alex's book, Eagles Over Husky, from uh, Hellion & Co. We'll have a link to that as well. Uh, and finally, you can follow him on Twitter at Alex Fitzblack and the museum at Juno Beach Centre. And uh, we, we hope that you will follow and engage with both. And uh, once again, uh, from you know both of us here at History Rage, thanks very much for coming along, Alex, because that great, was great. It's my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel and you can follow Kyle at Kyle G History. And you can subscribe to us on Patreon, which really helps us meet the cost of podcasting, because your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests, and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.